the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Romans. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. Paul even said that the mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. So if we want to really pursue the perfect will of God, he says these are the three things to start. Commit your bodies and lives as living sacrifices of holiness. Number two, do not be conformed or molded or fashioned by this world. And number three, be transformed. Have a metamorphosis, that's the Greek word that is used here, of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In today's message from Pastor Gary, he shares with you the importance of committing your life to the Lord. You're not going to find lasting peace and satisfaction within the world. The only way you're going to find lasting peace and transformation is by surrendering your life to Jesus. Pastor Gary explains that Jesus says that He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Receive Jesus as Lord today. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Romans chapter 11 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. So they will see the resurrected Lord when he returns. And this is what is going to play into the salvation of the Jewish people because the revelation now will be obvious before them. Another verse further in chapter 13, verse 7, and on the screen it's kind of it's a second bullet point, that they will turn away from Christ when he was crucified, which Matthew tells us in chapter 26, 31 was fulfilled because Jesus quotes it. Here's what verse 7 says. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who was close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. A reference here to, to Jesus. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Okay? Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. In Matthew 26, 31, Jesus quoted this, this verse from Zechariah 13, 7 in reference to his own crucifixion. He said, when I'm crucified, when the shepherd is, is stricken, is struck, then all the sheep, my disciples, are going to abandon me. They're all going to forsake me. They're all, for the moment, to protect themselves, they're going to all abandon Jesus. Remember that scene where they all fled? Because they were all worried. They didn't want to be associated with Jesus. And so Jesus said, this verse will be fulfilled at the time of my crucifixion. All right, now further into into Zechariah 13, verse 8, it says this. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will bring into the fire. 
I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is our God. This is going to be the great moment when, as Paul said, all Israel will be saved. But please understand what all means. It means that during the period of the Great Tribulation, Zechariah tells us two-thirds will perish in the fire of the Tribulation. One-third will come through it. That third that survives the Tribulation will all put their faith and trust in Christ. So it is a very bittersweet passage to understand that when Paul says in Romans eleven twenty six that all Israel will be saved, and, and the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible, so when you compare it with Zechariah 13, what it tells us is that all is not every single Jewish person. It's the third who survived the tribulation period. And thus all Israel will be saved. So God is certainly not done with Israel, certainly not done with the Jewish people. And by the way, the tribulation period is not God's way of punishing people. Okay, Revelation 6 to 18 details the period of the tribulation. And, and what it actually is and what, what, how it needs to be understood is it is God's final wake-up call. It is God's final attempt to reach the most stubborn hearts. So the Jewish people aside for the moment, although they're included in, the, in this whole conversation, but for the moment, the tribulation period is so that God can, you know that old saying like, you know, when did you finally wake up to some kind of reality? And, and people use this saying like, oh, it took a two by four upside the head, you know? So it was, it was like some, some rude awakening that finally got your attention. That's what the tribulation period is. It is God's final attempt to reach a God-forsaking, Christ-rejecting world with all kind of cataclysmic things that are going to happen in the universe so that people will finally wake up and go, wow, this the world is crazy. You think the world is crazy now? We haven't seen nothing. The world is going to get crazy and crazier and crazier as we get closer to the return of Christ. Now, the good news is that I believe Scripture teaches that the church, that Christians are going to be taken from the earth before all that tribulation period, but you'll still be able to get saved during the tribulation period because those are the most stubborn people who are going to be left behind who have rejected Christ, who have forsaken God, and their attention will be gotten a hold of when they see all these things that transpire in the world. Unfortunately, the Bible says in Revelation, some will still raise a fist to heaven and curse God and want to die. But others will get saved through that time. God even has in reserves in order to specifically evangelize the Jewish people, 144,000 Jews. The Bible says 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, that God will dispatch during the time of the tribulation as evangelists so that other Jews might come to faith in Christ as well. By the way, the 144,000 in the book of Revelation are Jews who are saved. They are not Jehovah's Witnesses, (laughs) which is what they will tell you. When they come knocking at your door, they're going to say, hey, you know, the, in the book of Revelation, it talks about 144,000. That's us Jehovah's Witnesses. And you need, to, you need to become one of us so that you'll be, you'll be ready for the end of the age. You need to be one of the 144,000. Are you kidding me? When they say that, ask them, how many Jehovah's Witnesses are there right now? There's a few million. 
So your answer is, I guess you've already exceeded 144,000. There's no room for me, right? There's 160,000 Jehovah's Witnesses in Japan alone. Anyway, I digress again. <laughs> so it's the Jewish people who are saved and are going to be used as evangelists in, in, uh, in, in the end of the age during that tribulation period. So, so God's not done with the Jewish people. Back here to Romans chapter 11, God is not done with the Jewish people. And, um, and so all Israel will be saved. Uh, but the unfortunate part is that those who do not uh, receive Christ before the tribulation will go through it. Two-thirds will perish and a third will remain, and that third will put their faith and trust uh, in Jesus. Back in Romans eleven twenty-eight, he says, As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy... Circle that word. He's going to repeat it three more times in the next two verses. He says, just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Now that sounds pretty fatalistic, doesn't it? But it literally just simply means that God has, has concluded that all men are guilty. That's what it means when it says God has bound all men over to disobedience. It just simply means God has concluded. Okay, the verdict is in. All men are guilty. And thus, in their guilt, they now have the opportunity to receive the mercy of God. And then he closes this 11th chapter with this doxology in verse 33. He says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Say it out loud. Amen. End of chapter 12. Chapter 12, for you note-takers has this main theme, to resist the conforming pattern of this world and to give yourself fully to the work of God. That's basically what chapter 12 is about, calling us to resist the conforming pattern of this world and to give yourself fully to the work of God. It is split into two sections. The first two verses have to do with the vertical, that is, our relationship with God. And then verse 3 through the end of the chapter, verse 21, it has to do with the horizontal, our relationship with one another. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 answer, I think, one of the most often asked questions that, at least in, in my ministry, I've gotten from people over the years. And that is that never-ending curious question of, how can I discern the will of God? All right, And we've all been there at some point where we want to know what is God's will, maybe for my life, what is God's will on a particular matter, but how can we discern the will of God? So these first two verses give us uh, an understanding of what we can do to better understand and discern the will of God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. It says, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, okay, 
And a good little Bible lesson is whenever the word therefore appears in the Bible, you have to ask yourself, what is it there for? Because it connects some previous thought. And the, and the verses I just read a moment ago, back in chapter 11, where I said, circle the word mercy, because mercy is repeated so often there in those closing verses. Well, now he's building on that. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, here it is, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. These first two verses deal with the vertical. It's like, okay, my relationship with God. How can I discern the will of God in my life? That's how he closes verse 2. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So how do I discern the will of God? I'd like you to think of the will of God not so much as a straight line. Okay, in our culture, we're, we're very you know, linear in the way that we think. So we, we want, I, I'm at point A. And I want to know what point B is. What is God's will? And so, you know, we think of a straight line between point A and B, and I want to get directly to the will of God. All right, but you're going to have to leave Western mentality, and you're going to have to think with a Middle Eastern mindset, because they don't think in linear terms. Culturally, they think in, in global terms, in, in circular terms. So I want you to picture the idea of the will of God as a target. I don't mean the store, I mean an actual target that you would shoot an arrow at, okay? Think of the will of God like a target. And think of the way that Paul is speaking about the will of God and the three words that he uses here as the words that head towards the bullseye. He speaks there in verse 2 about testing and approving what God's will is. Notice, his good pleasing, and perfect will. Now, while his perfect will is always good, his good will does not necessarily mean it is his perfect will for you. While his perfect will is always pleasing, his pleasing will does not necessarily mean it's his perfect will for you. So think of the bullseye in terms of the outer part of the will being good, and then you're moving closer to the perfect will, which is the bullseye in the middle, but between good and perfect is pleasing. So in the perimeter, there's good, closer to the bullseye, there's pleasing, and then the middle of the target is perfect. Now, all of us, I hope, in terms of wanting God's will, you know, want the arrow to be right at the perfect will of God. All of us ideally should aspire and want and pray for what is God's perfect will. But as much as that should be our aim and our prayer, I don't want anybody to get discouraged about his good and pleasing will as well. And here's what I mean. As long as you love the Lord and you're devoted to him, and you do the best you can, you have to factor in some human error. And the human error is that we won't always get it right when we're trying to discern the perfect will of God. That doesn't mean you're fatally outside of his will altogether. 
And sometimes we think this because we're thinking point A to point B, and if I'm not always on the straight line of the perfect will of God, then oh my goodness, I'm going to fall off a cliff and the rest of my life is going to be ruined. No, God is a redeeming God, and here's what God often does. Instead of point A to point B being a straight line, if you were to look back in the rearview mirror of your life, how many of you would say that it's been a little zigzagged over the course of your lifetime? Let me see your hands, okay? All of our hands should be, if you have any amount of life in the rearview mirror, you should be able to say it's been zigzagged a little bit. I I wish we could all say it's been a perfect line. Oh, it's been a perfect line. Oh, my life's just been a perfect line. No, it hasn't. All right? It hasn't. Everybody's life gets a little off track. Sometimes we hang a little right. Sometimes we go a little left. Now, guess what? Sometimes we go right or left because of sin. Sometimes we make sinful choices, and we're outside, we're outside of the will of God. We, we do some things that aren't right, and so we get off track, okay? Other times, we, we frankly do the best we can. We're praying all we can. We're seeking all we can. We're reading the Bible all we can. And you know what? Factor in human error, we're still sometimes not going to get it right. But in the providence and sovereignty of God, here's the good news. God is so good and merciful to us that here's the straight line But whenever we go a little bit this way, God will do this. And whenever we go a little bit to the right, God will do this. And it's a process always as his children, as long as we love him, we're we're seeking him, we're doing the best we can, that even in human error, there's going to be times that we aren't perfectly on that line. It's, It's okay. We're still within his good and pleasing will. It's not like now God has disowned us because we've made a wrong turn. Even in our sinfulness, when we make wrong turns, God is merciful and he forgives us. And he can redeem those years. And he, and, and even though we can't undo those years of some, of some terrible sinful choices we have made, God can redeem them. And God can still use those miserable sinful things we did for his glory in the future at some point. That at least we can use it as a testimony to help other people and to share with other people how God was so merciful to me. So in other words, that even in the good and bad, God is merciful to redirect us, to keep us moving towards that perfect mark. But don't, don't, and I, and I run into this where people are like, you know, I, I, I moved, I moved to Montana and now I think that God has disowned me. No, you're just going to be really cold. <laughs> you know, and so, and it's okay. You know, guess what? You can actually move back. You know, it's not like so, it's not so fatalistic that some things that we do, we just go, oh no, I've ruined the rest of my life. Now, now look, I don't want to minimize. Sometimes we have some consequences for the rest of our lives when we make sinful choices that we have to deal with and we have to live with. Okay. So I don't want to paint this unrealistic picture here. I want to be pretty realistic, but I also want to be encouraging to you that even in, that in, even in our mistakes and even we don't get it right sometimes, God in his mercy, will keep us at least on the target. Sometimes it's his pleasing will. Sometimes it's good will. Hopefully, sometimes it's right in the center of his perfect will. That should be always where we pray. That should be always what we seek. But even outside of that perfect little circle, God is still merciful, and God still uses us, and God still redeems us, and God still loves us. Everybody understand that? Okay, so understanding, discerning the will of God. Now, he tells us three things here. About how, because, because verse two ends by saying, then you will be able to test and to prove what God's will is. Well, what are the, what are the, what's the instruction leading up to the word then you will be able to test it? Well, one of the first things he says there is we have to commit your bodies and your lives as living sacrifices of holiness. That's what he says there in the very beginning. He says, he says, therefore I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies 
as living sacrifices. By the way, in, in contrast to the dead sacrifices of the Old Testament, okay? Living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So our lives should be devoted to holiness. Why? Because God is holy. And God tells us in 1 Peter 1.16, be holy because I am holy. He instructs us to be holy. And the way we honor a holy God is to live a holy life. And I think we deceive ourselves when we live lives that aren't holy and think that God's going to still direct the course of our life along the lines of his perfect will. We're just deceiving ourselves. How can you really know and discern the perfect will of God when, when you're not living a holy life and you know it? It doesn't make sense to say, yeah, I'm going to kind of live however I want. I mean, I know I'm supposed to be holy, but I really don't want to be holy. And so, but God, what's your perfect will? Oh, God, should I marry this person? Why should he tell you? Because a holy God wants us to be holy. The best way we pay respect and honor a holy God is to live a holy life. So Paul says, first thing first, I want you to offer your bodies. I want you physically to be pure. I want your lives to be right and honorable and pure before God. So that then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. Second thing he tells us also in this passage is do not be conformed, which means molded or fashioned by this world. We all get this, right? That The world is constantly trying to shape us into its image. Even in Colossians 2.8, the Bible says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. There's, there's a lot of principles of this world. There's a lot of philosophies of this world. There, there, there's a lot of schools of thought in this world. There are, there, there's a lot of, uh, you know, different perspectives in this world. Okay. But what we're called to have as Christians is, is to have the mind of Christ. And we need, we need to make sure that we're not being conformed, shaped, fashioned by this world. And it's going to be, it, it will be a relentless battle. This world is constantly trying to shape us into the grip of its own image and into the culture and in, into what our society defines as right and wrong and moral and immoral. Okay, listen, we live by all different standards. We can't let the world conform us. We can't allow the world to mold us and shape us and fashion us into its image. No, he says, do not conform, verse 2, any longer to the pattern of this world. But, here's the third thing, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind is the first battleground that Satan will try to win. Because if you don't guard and protect your thought life, usually action follows. And if you do guard and protect your thought life, the same result. Good action also follows. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7 says, Do not be anxious for anything, but in all things, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God, and the peace that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We need to be people of prayer. We need to take, we need to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Some people think it doesn't really matter what I think. It just matters what I do. No, because what you do is going to end up being the fruit of what you think. So you must guard your thoughts. You must take captive those thoughts. You can't allow yourself to entertain and fantasize and imagine and conjure up. Because I guarantee you, except for the impulsive kinds of things, most sinful behavior first starts in the mind. 
And that's the battleground that must be won. Back in Romans 8, 6, Paul even said that the mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. So if we want to really pursue the perfect will of God, he says these are the three things to start. Commit your bodies and lives as living sacrifices of holiness. Number two, do not be conformed or molded or fashioned by this world. And number three, be transformed. Have a metamorphosis, that's the Greek word that is used here, of your mind. Change your thinking and your thought life and take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection as we dig into the book of Romans. Isn't Paul's faith inspiring? Did you know you can download our mobile app and take Cornerstone Connection with you wherever you take your phone? That way you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word right at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. We'd love to meet you in person, too, at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Stop in for a service this Sunday at 8.30, 10, or 11.45 a.m., or join us for our Bible study and fellowship on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Pastor Gary would love to shake your hand and answer any questions you may have about the study, about Cornerstone Chapel, or about how you can have a relationship with God. Find out more at cornerstoneconnection.cc. You can listen to additional teachings from this study or read accompanying resources on our site as well. Just look under the Teachings tab. That's all we have for today, but join us next time to learn more from the Book of Romans right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.